Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which usually we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy, passage by passage. But in this episode, we're not slow walking. Instead, this is our second interview of this podcast series. This interview is with Kristen Hook. Kristen Hook is writing her dissertation on Dante and specifically on the 10th Canto of Inferno. Let me remind you about the 10th Canto. Ferranata, the heretics, the great Ghibelline leader Ferranata, standing up like a Greco-Roman statue, having a bit of, oh, boyish one-upmanship with our pilgrim, and then slowly coming back around to having some kind of more essential human connection. And in the middle of that, the father of Dante's friend and rival poet, Guido Cavalcanti, stands up in the tomb or comes up with his head just above the level of the tomb and wonders, where is my son, Guido? If you want to look back on those episodes in Walking with Dante, you can review the plot. You can also just go back and look at the passages themselves. You can talk, see what we talked about there in the episodes or, again, just read the 10th Canto because Kristen Hook is going to be slightly ahead of us. She is, for sure, a dantista, a true expert on the 10th canto, an amazing person to talk to, and she's going to talk a lot about incarnational poetry. Let me just stop before we get to her and say what incarnational poetry means. The incarnation is the Christian doctrine that when Jesus was born, the Godhead took on human flesh or was incarnated in a human body. So what we're talking about here is spiritual ideas given a fleshly or physical existence, none greater than the notion Dante has that his love, his, well, sexual love for Beatrice is equivalent or somehow on a plane with or leads him to his spiritual love of God. It is an incarnational moment of love with Beatrice that is considered a kind of divine love. Chris is going to talk a lot about incarnational poetry in the 10th Canto of Inferno. So without any further ado, let's talk to her, Kristen Hook, getting her PhD from UC Berkeley on Dante and the 10th Canto of Inferno. So welcome, Kristen. Welcome to the podcast, Walking with Dante. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm thrilled to have you on. I found Kristen on a YouTube video that you did about Canto 10, and I wanted to know so much more about your thoughts and your research on Cavalcante and Dante and what all that, how that all ties together in Canto 10. And we skimmed a bit about that in Canto 10 when we were there. And I want you to come back to that. But before we get to that, I wanted you to tell me, why are you studying Dante? Oh, million dollar question. Um, well, I think you know, as always with these sorts of things, it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment where, you know, such a, an interest or, or passion begins. But um, my first encounter with Dante happened actually not through the Divine Comedy, but um, with a little work of his that he wrote beforehand um, called the Vita Nuova, sometimes called, you know, his Libello, his little book or the book of his memory. And um, I had studied Italian in high school. Um, but then after that, um, one thing led to another, I found myself actually living and studying in Italy. And after kind of being in Florence and seeing this pr immense presence of Dante, 
that was also accompanied by Dante's absence in the city, you know, um, by virtue of his exile, the fact that his bones are still in Ravenna. There's something about that that really struck me. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to try to pick up some Dante. So I was you know, like 18 years old and I wandered into a, a Feltrinelli and I, I picked up for some reason the, the Vita Nuova of all things. And I remember sitting down and reading it and thinking, oh my goodness, this is this is so strange. This is a, a work that was written in the 13th century. You know, I grew up as a kind of um, postmodern Southern Californian and something about the shock of a contact of the contact with a work that was so old, but that I found myself, you know, being able to read. I was there with Dante's Italian and, um, and it was rather, you know, overall legible. And um, I was wondering, how is that? Um, why is that in Italian that I can somehow, you know, at that point, not being the greatest expert in Italian, you know, read Dante? And that opened up a series of questions that I think I just kept on pursuing with Dante, you know, um, kind of leading me to find how um, important Dante is in Italy's entire intellectual and you know literary tradition um, and finding in Dante the key to so many things that I wanted to continue to learn about. Um. So you backed into Dante because I would dare say most of us come in through the comedy and then back up to the to the new life and back up to the banquet and we don't quite uh, we don't enter the way Dante, I think, might want us to enter, because that is, I think, kind of how Dante would like us to step into his world, because that is the world of Beatrice, and that is that is the whole impetus for the narrative, sitting right there. But most of us have to back up and get there in some way. Yeah, and I mean, the Vita Nuova, that's where a lot of it starts. It's one of these places where you can see Dante beginning certain um, tendencies that he'll continue with the comedy, you know, his interest in trying to teach the reader how to read his works. Um, and it's also interestingly enough where we kind of find documented the story of, um, of Dante's, of the beginnings of Dante's um, you know, poetic relationship um, with Guido Cavalcanti, so. And that's you. <laughs> now we get to you and Guido Cavalcanti. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on about Cavalcanti? I, I, I glean from how you talk about yourself that you almost consider yourself as much of a Cavalcanti scholar as a Dante scholar at this point. But is that fair? Would that be a fair assessment? In a sense, um, I would say, hmm. The, okay, so the curious thing about Cavalcanti is the way that he in many ways allows you to have um, kind of one leg um, on, oh, in Italian we would say like kind of one leg on either side of the horse in, in a certain sense. I would almost say that Cavalcanti in the work that I'm doing on him is also allowing me to kind of have one leg in the like uh, 1300s and 1200s, um, and then another leg kind of more in the 1400s, um, and one leg in philosophy, one leg in poetry. So I'm currently working on a PhD dissertation that examines um, what I would call Guido's afterlife, essentially, um, which is a big term, and I mean a lot of things by it, but um, um, I'm especially looking at Guido's afterlife in 
philosophy in Florence in the 15th century and how Guido comes to be a sort of cipher for all sorts of philosophy itself as a kind of figure of philosophy um, and how Guido, um, both his person um, and his poetic corpus um, or his person is a personification of his poetic corpus, how that is an important figure in the 15th century in Italy, um, but also how that relates to a, a tradition that kind of begins with Dante and begins um, at least with Inferno 10, um, in many ways before Inferno 10, and continues um, after Dante in the way that Cavalcanti, um, you know, is kind of thematized as this figure that branches poetry and philosophy, um, corporeal and spiritual salvation, um, this tension between a rupture and continuity, um, active and contemplative lives, right? You know, in, with, among this speculative Epicurean. So um, that's kind of the general domain. I mean, just to, re just to remind the people listening to this podcast, it is when you're speaking of Cavalcanti, you're speaking, of course, of Guido, the poet. And it is, of course, his father who, who yeah. creeps up into the tomb with Farinata in 10. And you said, interestingly, that Guido is a bit of a cipher in the 15th century because he comes to stand in for many things. But he's also a cipher in comedy, in Dante's comedy, Guido is, because where is he? I mean, after his father asks, where is my son? Guido himself forms a kind of empty space inside comedy itself. Can you talk a bit more about that, about Dante and Guido Cavalcanti and the spaces they create in each other? Absolutely. So, I mean, that moment um, where Dante in Inferno 10 first um, approaches Guido's father, Cavalcanti de Cavalcanti, you know, we see Cavalcanti peering into this open space next to Dante and trying to see if there's somebody else there with him. And in so many ways, Guido um, serves as this great interpretive opening, um, almost a, a dare to Dante's reader, because we, very much like Guido's father, have to interpret what Guido's absence there means. And it's something that um, can be um, salvific. It's something that can be a trap to us. On a certain level, we don't see his fate actually um, confirmed before our eyes, but we have this immense interpret um, invitation to consider where he will be. You know, he is not here now um, with Dante on this journey, but, you know, ostensibly he is going to be somewhere in this great kind of eschatological, um, you know, um, model. And so one of the things that I find in that episode is um, this kind of tension between openness and once again ending. So for instance, what, what do we make of that? Um, the Epicureans are constantly trying to um, impose a kind of finitude when they are presented with an interpretive opening, the kind of dangers of the imagination, right? It's kind of up to our own interpretive ethos as readers of Dante to decide what to make of that. Um, and we would kind of expect, right, when when he says, you know, when when you're right, when when Cavalcante, when the father 
stares into that blank space in in the rest well not every second but in much of the rest of inferno that blank space is filled with virgil that would be standing next to Dante, at least in the Inferno parts, that would be certainly filled in. I mean, obviously, Latini doesn't recognize that Virgil standing back there. So you have kind of a weird parallel there in the Latini episodes, but still you kind of expect it. And it's weird that when you bring it up that uh, he's looking for Guido in the space that would be held by Virgil, which causes all kinds of interpretive problems to open up underneath it right and underneath their own poetics absolutely and in a way you know guido is very much the poet who comes before dante in dante's own poetic context you know he was kind of the head honcho or the foremost poet in or on the florentine poetic scene before dante really rolls around and um so much of the way that dante presents that even in something like the vita nuova is about you know like, for instance, Dante um, begins his poetic relationship with Guido by sending out a poem of his own for interpretation that represents um, this kind of crazy dream that Dante has had. And, and later on, he reflects that even in Guido's poetic response to that poem, you can see that he didn't get it, as it were. So there's something there with Guido and interpretation. And it's also true that, um, you know, one of the reasons why it's curious that Guido comes to represent this sort of kind of interpretive crux is that Guido himself um, was the author in particular of a really rigorous doctrinal canzone, a poem that's all about describing kind of love and its phenomenology. Um, how does love work? How does it work in our bodies? How does it take effect? What is its nature? All of this sort of stuff. You know, Guido only ever wrote poetry and he only ever wrote it in the Florentine vernacular. But this poem ended up itself kind of having a very early um, fortune being glossed, you know, be receiving commentary from medics, actually, from a lot of doctors um, who are treating it as a kind of authority on this kind of more medical or philosophical um, subject matter. And so that's one of these places where we see Guido in a certain way, writing in a medium that would seem, you know, kind of like Dante's, you know, vernacular, transparent, etc. But it's a very tough poem, both kind of formally and in terms of its subject matter. So there are people who have also thrown that into the mix in terms of, you know, how does Guido become this kind of figure for literary interpretation itself? Yeah, there's this there's this kind of facile, in some ways it's facile, there's a kind of facile understanding between the two of them that somehow Guido Cavalcanti represents a more physical kind of love and Dante represents a more spiritual kind of love. And you see that sometimes in Dante scholarship, particularly from even mid 20th century. And I always back up from that because I always think, yes, of course, Guido's poetry is very uh, physical about that. And as you say, medics even commented on the physicality of his love. But it's not that Dante, I mean, Dante's very physically sexual with Beatrice too. I mean, all the heart-eating episodes. In, oh yeah, in the Dante has very incarnational <laughs> poetics. <laughs> we could say he yeah. does. That's it. Let, wait, let's stop on that incarnational poetic. Define that for me. What does that mean? Oh, I would say it's a. I mean, on one hand, a Christian poetics, um, but it's a poetics that is also very um, 
kind of interested and invested in in creation in um you know kind of the poetry of you know god's creation in that sense in a lot of ways for Dante, these themes of poetry or generation um, end up being like proxies for an understanding of, you know, God's art um, mm -hmm. in a certain way. Um, but that ends up being um, also in kind of the history, the later history of Cavalcanti, one of these linchpins. And so for instance, you know, you, you were saying that we have Cavalcanti de Cavalcanti, Guido's father, and then we have Guido Cavalcanti, who's not in the Inferno 10 episode. Well, sometime, you know, later on, so in the 15th century, we have yet another layer added to this, which is the actual um, incarnate presence of a descendant of Guido's, whose name was Giovanni Cavalcanti, who was uh, one of the platonic loves of Marsilio Ficino, the kind of foremost philosopher of Florence at the time. So that ends up being another way that Guido's presence also in a very incarnate way ends up coming into this picture. Ficino himself <laughs> kind of get perhaps some scolding from somebody like Pico della Mirandola, another big philosopher at that time, where it seems that Guido is almost being used as more of a figure for a kind of incarnational sort of poetics or incarnational philosophy. You could understand almost as being more like Christian or, or Eucharistic in a certain way than a certain perhaps more abstract spiritualizations. So it's not quite clear. I mean, to go back to your initial question of, you know, Dante, spiritual poet you know guido associated with pure you know with matter and yeah it doesn't seem to me so because it seems to me that and and this i get this gets repeated in the podcast working with dante a lot is that dante's concept of decio of desire is physical as well as spiritual it's it is i mean nothing gets the pilgrim moving like the thought of beatrice I mean, nothing. And it's not just the thought of Beatrice, it's the actual seeing of Beatrice. Yeah, and that seeing is always a very like physiological thing in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance too. You know, that's a kind of curious thing about theories of poetry, even at this time, or theories of psychology, right? So, you know, you have this site, which is both you know, a material site and a spiritual site. The idea being that like we would see in, you know, in Guido's poem, we take in things, impressions from the outside world through our eyes that then create like a stamp upon various faculties within our minds and our hearts and our souls. And it is from that basis that, you know, thought happens, that love is engendered, all these things through these images that are impressed upon our, our minds and our souls. And so it's another one of these curious places where the spiritual, the intellectual, um, etc., the amorous in a more uh, abstract sense, converge with the corporeal, with the, you know, the input of things from the material world around us. It's become an almost running tick in the podcast walking with dante and so listeners to this podcast will know when i say this it's become almost a tick but so much of what you just said has to wait for marco of lombardy in purgatorio 
<laughs> and it has to wait for those central chapters of Purgatorio to watch that incarnational sight thing happen in that whole sequence of essentially how a, a human gets a soul and what happens to it. So it's become a tick in this <laughs> podcast that, that it, we're waiting for Marco. We're waiting for Marco. So we'll just keep waiting. <laughs> we'll hold it incarnational impulse and wait for Marco some more. So let me ask you a broader question. Let me ask you why anyone should read Dante. Oh, this is another million dollar one. And um, I'll bring this back in a certain way to these issues of, um, you know, active and contemplative lives that are embodied in, in the Cavalcanti question as well. I'll kind of label myself as a contemplative in, the, in this. So, you know, a lot of people, I find, try to approach this question through, through ideas of, you know, what can Dante teach us in the world today? How can our reading of Dante help us address X or Y practical problem, social problem, political problem, ethical problem that we are dealing with in our age? And and Dante is great for those things. He's been used for that um, many times throughout history, but that goes in all sorts of directions. You know, there were people who were reciting and, you know, reading Dante in concentration camps at the same time that, um, you know, we had fascist monuments planned, you know, to, for Dante, or at the same time, there have been communist Dantes at the same time that Dante has been used um, as a figure for, you know, Italian national unity and I end up finding it more helpful to take a, an almost more like naive approach to that question or you know romantic with a capital R which is Dante should be read or is worth reading because his poetry is sublime um, and because I think that there's something immensely rewarding in contemplating a poem a form that is so novel it was you know at the time that it was written nothing had ever been written like it and there's something about the novelty of that that is also so reliant on things that have come before it and I think that that is something that the poem also generates so for instance I think the poem is worth reading um, or Dante's worth reading in general in contemplating how a poem can teach its reader how to read it. And I think that Dante does that. And I think that he does that in part in the hope that in learning to read with a capital R, or at very least, very least um, learning how to read his poem, that that poem may itself be a source for future creation, for future literary creation. And the crazy thing in Dante's case is that it worked. You know, we have this entire literary tradition that is, you know, very much grounded in, in Dante's poem. You know, if you even look to some of the more, you know, in a certain sense, iconoclastic thinkers of, you know, the 20th century, if you look to Pasolini, you know, you need your, your Dante to understand your, your Pasolini. And I think that there's something, you know, very much worth contemplating in um, the kind of cultural process that Dante's poem, yeah, began and um, began successfully. So that's that's one answer to a, a question that has a million answers. It does. It does have a million answers. What you bring up is intriguing to me because I think one of the ways Dante teaches you how to read his poem 
is that he is also learning how to write his poem yeah. as he goes forward. And he is willing to put dramatization, did I say that right? <laughs> the dramatization of his own learning to write it inside the text itself. And so like in those sequences later in 15 with Latini, you actually hear that he's got a notebook as he's making his journey, apparently, or waiting for a lady to gloss what Latini tells him. And you, you're suddenly getting this picture of a writer trying to figure out how to write this journey inside of it. And that helps us learn how to read it at the same time. A lot of writers don't want you to see their process. But Dante was open enough to let that happen, kind of. Yeah, and, that, comedy. and I also can't help but wonder, you know, if if part of that is also trying to expose that to an extent to his reader. You know, there's this way that the poem itself, you know, by kind of showing the reader that and showing how one might go about such a process or even a process of interpretation, right, which can also be a, itself a creative or or poetic act, how they might kind of resurrect his own poem and what comes after by using it essentially as material, right? It's a, a one sort of way that poetry continues to live. So that's all this to say that I would also bring that back to the, the Cavalcanti stuff that I read that episode as being very much about the kind of life of poetry for sure that for sure it's about the life of poetry and you surely don't also set off on a journey across the known universe with a great classical poet unless you intend somehow for your journey to also be about poetry yeah. if you're gonna pull Virgil in tow yeah. yeah you intend for something to happen along the way that's speaks to the writing of poetry. Well, I want to thank you for being on this episode of Walking with Dante. I want to thank you for your time. If other, if someone had questions about anything that you said or wanted to reach out to you, what's a good way for them to find you? Are you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, I'm a kind of social media recluse, um, but I can be reached via old-fashioned email. Um one place you can write me is um, at my Berkeley account. Um, you can find my Berkeley email on um, Berkeley's website of um, the Italian Studies Department. Excellent. That's an excellent way to find you. Thank you again for all your time. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in your dissertation. I wish you the best of success in what comes ahead. And uh, I'm sure that everybody will want to hear more about what you have to say. And if you want to see Kristen in another format, look her up on the Canto Tin uh, episode on YouTube on, what is that channel again on YouTube that you're on? It's the- To be the Dante Society of America or Canto per Canto. I'm not sure exactly yeah. how it's- I think it's, it's either Canto by Canto or it's one of those things and you can find her on YouTube. So thanks so much. I hope this interview pushed you. It certainly pushed me. You know, on this podcast, we are in a rowboat. We're in a giant ocean of water on our rowboat. And we're going along and, you know, sometimes we're dropping our line down and we're figuring out interpretive knots and we've got our fishing pole and we're pulling up difficult bits of comedy and I'm talking about them and helping you see why they're difficult. But it's nice to remember always that there are much bigger fishing poles and much deeper lines and we are on the surface of this giant complex unbelievably constructed ironic difficult and well genius work of literature 
And wow, there are depths below us that are unfathomable or that are being fathomed by people like Kristen Hook. Come back next time. We're starting the 16th canto. We're still with those homosexuals or who I think are the homosexuals. Come back next time and we'll find the next group who's coming across the burning sands, those who Brunetta Latini is not allowed to be with. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.